The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. It's day 460 of the war in Ukraine. Ukraine remains strong, but Putin shows no sign of admitting any defeat. With a counteroffensive in the planning and Europe, the US and others aiding Ukraine militarily, can Putin win? Can he even hold on to the territory that he has gained? Well, joining me to talk about all of this is Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics at the Clinton Institute, uh, UCD, and editor of EA Worldview. Scott, good morning. Very good morning to you, Pat. Now, you say... Russia cannot win this war, um, the objective being to take over all of Ukraine and turn it into some sort of puppet state. Why do you say that? Well, Pat, let's just look where we are after, as you mentioned, 460 days. Phase one ended all the way back in spring 2022 when uh, Vladimir Putin's forces, under the plan to try to overrun Kiev, the capital, within days to capture and probably kill President Zelensky and his ministers, not only were they unable to do that, um, but they were driven out of northern Ukraine and forced to withdraw by April. And then when you get to phase two, even though the Russians were able to advance and take part of the east, which they still hold, in September of 2022, a Ukrainian counteroffensive liberated areas not only in the east but in the south, including this very important city called Kherson which was one of the first cities to fall to the Russians. Then in phase three, Putin is, well, I'm not winning on the battlefield. I'm going to try to freeze and starve Ukraine into submission with the food war, trying to block its grain uh, exports, and with the energy war, trying to attack its uh, electrical installations, its uh, other energy facilities. And all of those phases have failed until here we are now in phase four, where Russia, uh, beyond a, a single relatively insignificant city called Bakhmut, which it took at high cost, can no longer advance on the battlefield. And what we're waiting for is a Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, with military aid from an international coalition, which is quite likely to regain more territory in the south and in the east, albeit not with, quote, victory. This war will not end soon, but it'll just be a further advance that shows that, yes, the initiative is with Kiev. And, let's put it this way, a reorganized Europe, which has really been brought together because of Vladimir Putin's gamble. At the same time, they are reigning terror um, the last couple of nights on uh, the capital, Kiev. uh, And the military speculation is that they're trying to deplete uh, the uh, anti-missile defense systems of the Ukrainians, force them using relatively cheap drones to exhaust those supplies. Yeah, they've been doing this since October, Pat. I mean, and the Iranian-made drones, and there have been hundreds of them which have been used, and then, of course, hundreds of cruise missiles and other missiles fired from the Caspian Sea, the Black Sea, and from uh, Russian land bases. But the point here is is that, uh, yes, it does take Ukrainian air defenses to knock those down, but that Ukraine has gotten more advanced air defenses in recent weeks and months, including the U.S.-made Patriot systems, and that it is Russia which is facing the depletion of stocks. Whereas in the initial waves of these strikes back in October, they could fire more than 100 missiles at one go. Now you're talking really uh, what they've done today with about 40 missiles and about, I think, 35 drones. Now that's still significant, but here's a key thing, Pat. They've had 15 sets of strikes on the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, this month alone, 15 sets of strikes. 
The number of significant targets that they've hit with those strikes, zero. There have been a few targets that have been struck outside Kiev, uh, but there's really been no significant damage to limit Ukraine the way that we feared would happen when they were took out at least half of Ukraine's power grid last autumn and winter. Now, the question for Putin is, how does he raise the stakes again? The speculation again that he would create some sort of nuclear crisis at uh, the Zaborizhia plant. Yeah, and and it continues to be an area of concern that this nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, in southern Ukraine, which is the largest in Europe, it has six reactors, that the Russians, having converted into a military base, could stage an incident. Uh, And the likelihood of that is sort of elevated because a Ukrainian counteroffensive would take place in that area. I, I wouldn't rule that out, but I just think that's, considering all possibilities, just as we have to look at the bluster. And it is largely bluster that comes from Moscow, where Putin and his uh, increasingly, uh, let's say, loud former president, Dmitry Medvedev, will make these threats, including these veiled threats that, look, we do have nuclear weapons. And I just have to put it to you, when you punch a bully in the nose, he shouts. He shouts even louder. And I don't think we're talking about Russia using nuclear weapons. I don't think we're talking about Russia even being able to use advanced weapons at this point. You're just going to hear a lot of this as the Kremlin tries to cling on, because as you noted in your introduction, uh, the idea of a negotiated settlement, that Putin's going to go to the table uh, at this point to talk to Ukrainians, is still far distant, because to do so, he'd have to admit he's lost. And he's not going to admit that especially because we've got increasing infighting in Moscow. Now, what about the deployment of tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus, uh, whose president, Alexander Lukashenko, it appears, is quite seriously ill? Uh, Lukashenko's kind of bounced back, I think, in a way, Pat. He just made an announcement today, which is that he he and Moscow standing together would welcome others to get nuclear weapons as well. And again... It is part of this bluster that's coming out from Moscow and that is supported by Lukashenko. Um, okay, Russian tactical nuclear missiles are, are positioned in Belarus. The fact is is that Russia already has tactical nuclear missiles positioned close to the Ukrainian border in Russia. To actually use one of those missiles is a far different thing. It, it, it's sort of a symbolic sign of escalation, those Russian missiles up in Belarus. But again, I don't think it changes the calculus on the battlefield. And I don't think right now it changes the political calculations either. Now, you mentioned that the uh, Russian attempt to starve uh, the Ukrainians of both food and power uh, didn't work. On the other hand, the West's uh, sanctions to try and starve the uh, Russians of pretty much everything that came from the West doesn't seem to have harmed the Russian economy as much as people had expected. Well, I, I think that's part of a miscalculation from the outset, Pat, from people, and I understand why they thought it, who thought, all right, if we impose sanctions, you know, it'll break Putin, you know, that, that very quickly the Russians will cave. And that wasn't going to happen. The, the reason why you put sanctions on Russia was first and foremost was to curb their ability to wage the war, which it has done. Um, Russian GDP is significantly down this year. Uh, Russia has lost tens of billions of dollars of foreign investment businesses that have now pulled out of the country. It's having to sell its oil at a discount uh, to customers like China, which means that its oil and gas revenues are down by about 40% compared to the end of 2022. Uh, It does not mean that Russia will collapse economically, but it does limit their capabilities. 
And as I say, you've got this slow erosion of Russia on multiple fronts, which means that we're in a marathon, not a sprint. But at the very least, what you can say is, is the combination of that economic and military pressure means that the idea that Russia is going to be able to, quote, win, that's long gone. And it is just a question on the terms on which this battle is ended or this conflict is ended, which really means how much of Ukraine's territory will it be able to regain. The question then of those around Putin who have offered him support, any sign of cracks there? We've seen the partisan attacks on Russian territory and even that drone attack on the Kremlin, but you get the impression that's a relatively small number of people who are willing to stand up to Vladimir Putin or who even want to. Well, there's one very significant person who is standing up to the Russian military leadership. Um, indeed, as he wants to become even closer to Vladimir Putin. And that man's name is Yevgeny Bergosian. Now, why is he significant? He is the commander of the Wagner Group mercenaries, upon whom the Russian military, having taken heavy losses, have had to rely in their offenses in the East. Uh, indeed, it is the Wagner, the Wagner Group mercenaries who took over the one city that Russia has been able to claim, Bakhmut. Prigozhin, as he has had this success, has turned against the defense ministry. He has said, look, you're starving us of supplies, you're incompetent, you don't know how to run the war. And he's done two things very recently. The first is, he said, look, I'm going to withdraw my fighters from Bakhmut, and you need to replace the defense minister and the commander of the invasion, General Gerasimov. And then, within the past 24 hours, he's fired a shot at Vladimir Putin. He didn't use Putin's name, but he said, and I'm going to quote this exactly uh, for your listeners to watch out for this, quote, if you are starting a war, please have character, will, and steel balls, and only then will you be able to achieve something. That's a pretty pointed message to Putin, which is, one, you need me by your side, but two, if you do not significantly throw out everyone else, you will lose this war and Ukraine will win. Now, the the people who have become enormously wealthy under Putin, um, many of them are sanctioned, but there's still and there will continue to be an escape route via, Russia, but, via Turkey because of Erdogan's win yesterday. Uh, he'll be there until 2028 at least. And it seems that Russians can move quite freely and can take their wealth with them. Yeah, they can take... Um, they can take wealth in Turkey, but there is a limit to how much they can get away with. Turkey's on notice um, from the U.S. and from the European Union that it could face sanctions if it is too brazen in allowing the Russians to move uh, their assets there. Uh, Erdogan, who is a master uh, political tactician, and thus has been able to win yet another term in office, having been at the head of Turkey for more than 20 years, is a not very competent economic tactician. So beyond the immediate question of whether Russians can move money into the country is just the question of how well the Turkish economy stands up. As I speak to you, Turkish inflation is at more than 80% amongst the highest uh, in Europe. In fact, it may be the highest in Europe. The currency has lost about 60% of its value in the last couple of years, and has now broken the symbolic marker of 20 versus to 1 versus the U.S. dollar in the same week that Erdogan has been reelected. So I, I think Erdogan will continue to balance between Moscow and between the West. Remember, Turkey is a member of NATO, 
but his capacity to completely unsettle the U.S. and Europe, and indeed the international community, it's it's limited because of his own domestic issues. Mm. Finally, I have to ask you how this thing will end uh, when you have a, a complete military defeat by one party over the other. Uh, then you get a Treaty of Versailles kind of situation where there's complete capitulation on one side. If it doesn't end that way, if it ends in some sort of settlement, normally there is a process by which each side saves face. How does that work in this conflict? Well, I think in this case... The first thing is, Pat, is that any settlement is going to have to involve Russia withdrawing from any territory that it seized since February 2022. Um, And for those people, you know, who loudly say you can negotiate with Putin, you can certainly talk to him. They need to realize that, that any negotiation with Putin, which gives him any territory uh, that he took by force and by mass killing, that doesn't go. That leaves the question of how much of the territory occupied by Russia since 2014 in effect, uh, Ukraine can regain. I think that means there will be talks over two specific areas. That will be the future of the Donbass, which includes parts of Luhansk and Donetsk provinces, and that will include Crimea, which was the peninsula that Russia seized uh, in the spring of 2014 after its, uh, the pro-Russian leader, Mr. Yanukovych, was forced out of Kiev. I think if you take this all the way back to March of 2022, within weeks of the war, that was exactly what Vladimir Zelensky put to the Russians, which is, you withdraw from the territory you've seized, and then we will talk. We will have a lengthy process to talk about the status of Crimea and about eastern Ukraine, where it's part of a federal system. But your dreams of effectively running these areas as your proxy areas, you'll have to give that up. And that's pretty much the lines of the negotiations that I think will eventually take place after and only after either Vladimir Putin realizes his forces have been defeated on the battlefield or he is finally forced out of power in Moscow. Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics at the Clinton Institute at UCD and editor of EA Worldview. Thank you very much for joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on News Talk.